You're listening to the Kurdistan in America podcast, the official podcast of the Kurdistan Regional Government Representation in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Dilovan Berwari. This is a special edition with General James Jones, with the primary focus on the bipartisan resolution commemorating the 30th anniversary of Operation Provide Comfort and supporting the strong Kurdish-American partnership today. General Jones has a very impressive profile. He was the 32nd Commandant of the U.S. Marine Corps, the Supreme Allied Commander for the European Command, and the National Security Advisor. He was also one of the original commanders of Operation Provide Comfort. On October 21st, Senator Van Hollen, along with Senator Marco Rubio, introduced a bipartisan resolution in the Senate after several members of Congress had first introduced it in the House of Representatives on April 30th. The initial co-sponsors in the U.S. House of Representatives were Michael Waltz of Florida, Jim Cooper of Tennessee, Chris Stewart of Utah, Jason Crow of Colorado, Dina Titus of Nevada, Andy Kim of New Jersey, and Don Bacon of Nebraska. Today, 24 members of the House have sponsored the resolution. Concurrent Resolution 32, as it's officially known, refers to the humanitarian military operation that saved hundreds of thousands of Kurdish refugees who fled to the mountains to escape from Saddam Hussein's armed forces after the uprising against his tyranny in 1991. It also honors all the brave U.S. soldiers who strive to prevent the death and starvation of innocent civilians. More than 10,000 Americans in the Air Force, Marines, Army, and Navy took part in Operation Provide Comfort, which was one of the most successful humanitarian operations in U.S. history. The Kurdistan Regional Government representation in the United States encourages Kurdish Americans to send a message to their members of Congress in the House and Senate in support of the resolution. And now, a very warm welcome to General James Jones. General Jones, welcome to the Kurdistan in America podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure having you. General, let's begin with your experience in the U.S. military. Tell us a bit about it and how it transitioned or led you to become the National Security Advisor. Well, I um, I graduated from uh, Georgetown University in 1966. Um, My family uh, served in uh, my father and my uncle served in World War II as Marines, and uh, I grew up uh, overseas in post-war Europe, um, and I always had it in my mind that I would uh, someday serve my country as a Marine, much much the same way my father did and my uncle, and um, uh, I had planned on spending three years on active duty, and I wound up spending 40 years on active duty, uh, retired in February of 2007 and worked for a couple of years for the Chamber of Commerce on energy projects. And uh, then in in, in 2008, after President Obama uh, won the nomination, won the election to become president, uh, he asked me to serve as his uh, national security advisor for the first two years of his administration. And so I, my life has been one of service uh, to the country, uh, for better or for worse, <laughs> as best as I could. And um, I, I wouldn't change a, I wouldn't change anything, uh, anything uh, in that career path at all. Uh, I, I feel blessed to have been given the opportunities I've been given, and uh, 
I continue to uh, think about the, the future of the United States as a global power, and uh, I'm very happy to uh, be with you today to talk about uh, Operation Provide Comfort. General, thank you again for joining us, and I want to acknowledge that you have a very impressive profile, and you've made some amazing accomplishments throughout your career. Now, as you mentioned earlier, let's pivot to Operation Provide Comfort. In an opinion piece that you wrote about Operation Provide Comfort in Foreign Policy a few years ago, you mentioned that this operation remains in the history books as an underappreciated success story of geostrategic importance. First, can you tell us about your role in the operation? And second, what did you mean by underappreciated success story of geostrategic importance? Well, um, in, in 1991, I was a colonel. And uh, earlier in uh, the summer of 1990, uh, actually on the day that Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait, I took command of the 24th Marine Expeditionary Unit, special operations capable, out of uh, Camp Lejeune, North Carolina, home of the 2nd Marine Division. Um, the Marine Expeditionary Units uh, in the Marine Corps were special organizations that comprise of air, land, and logistics capabilities and married up with the U.S. Navy's amphibious shipping for six-month deployments. Um, I, um, as I said, I took command on the day that Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait. And um, for the type of training that we underwent, uh, it was a really a six-month workup uh, followed by a rigorous capabilities test. And as it worked out, we were probably the only major combat unit in the Marine Corps that was not deployed to Desert Shield, Desert Storm, uh, because uh, we had to go through the special operations capability training. But anyway, at, at any rate, and of course that was a morale issue within the, the unit because uh, it was it was uh, our fate to watch uh, all the other Marine units at Camp Lejeune deploy to um, Saudi Arabia. Um, as we passed our exams and sailed uh, towards uh, towards the Mediterranean, and then the plan we thought would have been to send us through the Mediterranean, down through the Suez Canal, and up and around to the uh, Persian Gulf. Uh, didn't quite work out that way because um, Desert Shield, Desert Storm operation was launched just one day uh, while we were out at Gibraltar. And so uh, our vision of joining all the other combat units that were dashed uh, created some, something of a morale problem. I think no Marine likes to miss out on, on that kind of action, but that was our fate. Um, but little did we know that uh, fate would also intervene uh, towards uh, the early spring uh, when we were diverted from our peacetime mission in the Mediterranean to report to the commanding general of operation, uh, provide comfort, uh, who was then located in the Iskenderun uh, port in Turkey. Um, so the so that's the the beginning of our involvement in 
in Operation Pride Comfort. Um, uh, up until that time, uh, there had been no humanitarian operation recorded in the history books that, that was the size of Operation Provide Comfort. And, and I say, I mentioned it was underappreciated simply because um, it, it, it occurred in a geostrategically important region. Uh, Turkey, uh, Iraq uh, region is strategically very important. Um, NATO is an uh, uh, NATO is an ally uh, of Turkey, and Turkey is an ally of NATO. Um, we uh, had good bilateral relationships with uh, Turkey, um, and um, um, it was really one of the first times an operation of that size united uh, the non-governmental organizations with the governmental organization, that is, the military. And um, it was international militaries out of NATO that were working together um, for really one of the first out-of-area operations uh, with NATO countries um, ever, and certainly nothing that size. And so there were a lot of firsts there, but I think... Uh, uh, I say it's underappreciated simply because, uh, you know, once the operation was over, and it, it lasted several months, once the operation was over, it, it disappeared from, from the headlines. But I think it was strategically a very important uh, reinforcement of the transatlantic commitment uh, that the United States has with uh, European countries. And uh, it, it was uh, phenomenally successful without um, any combat uh, to speak of being conducted, but nonetheless having a, a great effect in, uh, in, in, in the North Atlantic Treaty Organization and in America's commitment to Europe. It certainly makes a lot of strategic sense. Now, General, as you know, April marked the 30th anniversary of Operation Provide Comfort, and a bipartisan resolution has been introduced to Congress commemorating the anniversary and the Kurdish-American partnership today. What's your take on that? And also, do you have anything specific to tell members of Congress and policymakers on the, on the resolution, about, about the resolution? Well, I think the resolution is very important because it shows that people uh, have not forgotten and, and do remember this as an important, important mission uh, uh, for the for the for a military organization, uh, and I believe that um, it reinforces the idea that this kind of utilization of the military, uh, where there is a humanitarian need, is is a is a way to show how the military can be used for different purposes, not just to f fight and win wars, but to also prevent future wars by taking action early on. Uh, and, um, and, that, and I think that that remains something that needs to be developed uh, a little bit more, um, you know, in uh, what I would call the emerging world, uh, particularly in Africa and other places like that. Um, but it, it, the United States should, should stand for a number of things, I think, and in our value chain. And one of them is to to be a force for good, um, you know, to fight fight if we have to, but uh, 
prevent uh, future conflicts by uh, proactive engagement uh, where needed uh, by emerging democracies uh, to help them uh, develop the capabilities they need over time. But I, I, I think it's a, it's a destiny of the United States to be a, a force for good, uh, a, a teacher of values, um, a sponsor of freedom uh, in different countries. And, um, and together with our friends and allies and other democracies to be able to um, proactively uh, act in a way that prevents uh, future conflicts. And so I, I feel very, very uh, honored to have been part of one of the uh, initial efforts to show how that, how that can work um, in cooperation with NGOs as well. Very well said and great analysis. Now, General, I want to pivot to your role as a national security advisor, which is one of the top policymakers, perhaps the top policymaker after the president. I want to get your take on the U.S. involvement in the Kurdistan region. Uh, Basically, the U.S. is the leader of the global coalition to defeat ISIS, and it also supports the Peshmerga forces through training programs and provides military aid. It's also the largest humanitarian donor in Kurdistan and Iraq. As you know, General, ISIS has regrouped and incre- has increased its terrorist activities in Iraq and Syria. And just in the past few weeks, more than 30 Peshmerga forces were killed by ISIS. General, the, there seems to be a cycle here. In 2011, you, the U.S. withdrew troops from Iraq. Of course, that was after you left the White House. And the withdrawal left a power vacuum that ultimately led to the rise of ISIS. And the recent U.S.-Iraq strategic dialogue agreement resulted in the withdrawal of U.S. troops, at least combat troops, from Iraq, which was actually uh, completed a few weeks ago. I want to get your take on this. I'm of the opinion that um, the U.S. uh, cannot afford uh, any kind of retrenchment uh, in that region. Uh, there's no secret that Iran would love to have a unimpeded access uh, uh, across uh, Iraq and south of Turkey, uh, all the way to Lebanon. Um, and it's absolutely essential from a strategic standpoint that they pre- be prevented from doing that. Um, it's also strategically very important that ISIS not be allowed to regroup in any way. And I think that um, following the unfortunate uh, events in Kabul, uh, that to duplicate that in any way uh, by pulling out, pulling our forces out and showing a lack of commitment in that very important strategic region, it would be a catastrophic mistake for the United States. That was a rational analysis, General. Here is one more question. Essentially, the United States is a stability-seeking power, and in theory, stability requires stability in the region requires both balance of power and a form of democracy. So my question is about the Peshmerga forces, who have proven to be a force of stability and democracy. Uh, but the problem is that the Peshmerga forces, as you know, are currently underarmed, uh, or they are not equipped properly to fight ISIS. 
So it doesn't even make sense for Washington to properly arm the Peshmerga forces to balance the power in the region, at least for the sake of stability and preserving the only peaceful region where Christians, Yazidis and other religious minorities are protected and are living in peace in Kurdistan. I want to get your take on this. Well, the answer to that is yes. And I might add that that over the years, I've been an admirer of the Peshmerga. Um, as a matter of fact, in the, in the 2003 invasion of Iraq from the north, uh, Peshmerga and American troops fought side by side. And I think Peshmerga casualties outnumbered American casualties. So there's no question that uh, the Peshmerga is widely admired for their bravery and courage and also for their commitment to the uh, uh, to the relationship with the United States. Um, I believe that the United States should and I would imagine will um, render assistance to the Peshmerga to make sure that uh, they are a force uh, to be reckoned with. Uh, uh, by anyone who dares to attempt it. And I think uh, as a matter of policy, that's what we should do. And I feel very strongly about that. My next question is related to U.S. investments in Kurdistan. You were the CEO of U.S. Kurdistan Business Council from 2012 to 2017. So you have a good understanding of investments, uh, American investments or uh, investments in Kurdistan. What potential do you see for American companies in Kurdistan? Well, that's a very difficult question. Um, in my view, um, you know, it, it, should, uh, it should be an unfettered relationship, you know, depending on which administration uh, is, is in power in the United States. So uh, you may have different, different views and different versions of how to proceed. But um, I have... Uh, you know, watch several companies, particularly oil and gas uh, companies in uh, in the Kurdish region, in Kurdistan, uh, for a number of years, and generally that's been a, a very healthy relationship. Complicated sometimes by the Turkish relationship, um, the, the 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 local, the regional government, and in the capital of Iraq. Uh, so it kind of it kind of depends on on who's sitting where, but it's something that I think that uh, we should continue to work on and make sure that uh, uh, American companies uh, are free to operate uh, in Kurdistan, just as they are in any other region uh, of, of Iraq. Great analysis, General. Now we've reached the final segment of the interview where we ask our guests the same three questions. Here goes the first question. When was the first time you heard about Kurdistan? The first time I heard uh, about Kurdistan um, was uh, during the period when Saddam Hussein uh, essentially perpetrated what most people call genocide uh, with a chemical, uh, chemical attacks on, on Kurdish people. And that's the first time I really concentrated, I think, on what was going on in the region, and I became a, a student of, uh, of, uh, of that particular part of the world. Very well. The second question, 
What is a word or phrase that sums up Kurdistan for you? I think the, the single word that I would use is, is uh, courage. Um, courage under unbelievable circumstances. Um, the courage that was manifested in, during Operation Provide Comfort with uh, unbelievable suffering uh, by the people who were stampeded out of Kurdistan and into the, uh, the mountains of southern Turkey during what was still mostly a winter type of, uh, uh, of uh, environment. Um, and, and the courage that the Kurds have shown uh, steadfastly, that might be the second word, steadfast courage uh, over the years uh, when fighting oppressive uh, regimes that uh, seem to surround our friends in Kurdistan. Now, finally, the final question. What's a word or phrase that sums up America for you? I think the, the, the word or, or phrase that sums up the United States for me is, is um, a commitment to the dignity of the human uh, spirit uh, and the freedom uh, of that spirit to achieve things uh, for the good of, of not only the United States, but uh, for mankind. And I hope that uh, 30 years from now, we'll be able to look back on our uh, commitments and look at ourselves in the mirror and say, we did what we said we would do. We did it well. We did it as best we could. General, first, thank you so much for the interview. And also, on behalf of the KRG, I would like to thank you and your colleagues in the military for delivering on Operation Provide Comfort and saving so many lives. I thank you. Uh, it was a pleasure talking to you, and uh, I look forward to uh, staying in touch, and I look forward to hearing good things about our friends in Kurdistan. It's an absolute honor to have you on our show, General. Thank you for listening to the Kurdistan in America podcast the official podcast of the Kurdistan Regional Government Representation in Washington, D.C. Please don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on either Buzzsprout, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google. Also, for more information about the Kurdistan region, please visit our website at www.us.gov.krd or follow us on Twitter at krg_usa. USA.